Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Blog Talk Radio. Angeles, California. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Shaw McCain, and I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show is created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow the Paranormal and the Sacred on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. We're very proud to say we're translating into many different languages all over the world and uh, we, for our listeners outside the country. And I started getting messages in many languages, even Finland, and I was, what the heck's going on? And then I found out we're being translated everywhere. So anyway, tonight the call-in number is 619-924-9744, and the Paranormal Sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, during the, we're having a special show tonight, so things are going to be a little bit different. We're doing a memorial for our blessed and beloved Uncle Louie and uh, have family members already on the line. And uh, those in chat, uh, when you join us, you can actually you know, give your regards to the family or ask questions. If you know something, we'll, we'll let you know. And uh, that will be the memorial. So uh, let's see... Uh, I have a few announcements. Uh, there is a friend of mine. She does UFO hotspot uh, stuff in uh, Sedona, and she wants you to know that she's only charging like 75 bucks to take you out there with the military uh, goggles and everything else. And if you want to join their group, it's only 75 bucks. Uh, the kids are free, and uh, the phone number for her is 928. 928- Two eight two two zero eight five. You can reach out to Sedona Melinda Leslie, and she's at the Sedona New Age uh, something or other. I can't remember the name of the place. Anyway, and also this Sunday at the usual time, and the place is in Burbank this time. It's a secret location, so those who know serial members get over there to Burbank at the Burbank location at that one restaurant down there. And also, the Experiences Speak, August 28th to 29th in Maine, uh, it's not sold out yet. So be sure to get in there because we have so many awesome speakers that are coming to speak about uh, experiencers, uh, UFOs, things like that. And um, anyway, it's Experiences Speak, 774-766-2558. And also, if you do want to be part of the serial group that... It's kind of a support group for people that have extraordinary experiences and on strange encounters. Go to www.cerointernational.com. I've been with them 22 years, and they're a wonderful organization. And you can also Google Yvonne Smith and find out what she's all about. 
and uh, that's it. Um, so I have uh, my family on the show tonight, and I want to talk about Uncle Louie uh, just a little bit. And tonight is a memorial program for our beloved Lewis Harold Simpson II. He's a self-published author of the book, One Inventor's Autobiography, an inventor from Springfield, Mass. He has five older sisters, Madeline, known as Mimi, Mildred, Shirley, Doris, and Gertrude. We knew her as Betty. He also had one younger brother, my dad, Charles Chick Simpson, and he grew up in Amaro Street. He called it the block in Springfield, Mass. He overcame polio and illness in childhood, growing up during the Great Depression and World War II. He met his beloved wife of 56 years, Catherine Flynn, where they both worked at the Diamond Match Company, and he traveled across the United States during the Depression and had many unusual experiences of some we shared. And I'll be doing little experts of our interview during the show. On December 28, 1949, their first son, Louis III, was born. They were to have, then have another son, Wayne Simpson, born September 3, 1953. He happened to deliver his son, Wayne Simpson, himself after the doctor sent home, excuse me, sent Kathy home with false labor. Anyway, we're sorry to say that we lost Wayne. Uh, he died in his 40s due to epilepsy. And he eventually, um, Uncle Louie eventually became a high-skilled machinist, and he worked for the Navy in a historic Mare Island near San Francisco, California. Lewis and Kathy were lifelong seekers who sought out and thought a lot about spirituality and what it meant to him. He and his wife lived in Vallejo many years until she passed 11 years ago, and then his recent passing. He is a beloved father, grandfather, and my uncle. Tonight, his family gathers from all parts of the country to share their feelings and memory about this great man. Joining us will be his son, Louis Simpson III, his wife, Marion, his grandson, Chris Simpson, his wife, Tracy, and his granddaughter, Mary Catherine Simpson. Okay, so I do have some, somebody aboard here. So I'd like to welcome your live to the Paranormal and Sacred family members. Hi, y'all. Hi, how are you? Hi. We're, I'm doing good tonight. You know, this is uh, uh, since we we all have um, the circumstances and everything else, and we all can't get together. You know, I had the idea that we would do this, and I'm so I'm so glad that um, you know that we took the steps and got together like this because I, I love you guys so much. I I can't even express it, and I want to welcome you. It's wonderful. It's like being in your living room. Yes, exactly. So, so all we're going to do is talk. And um, I, I do. Who wants to start out? How about Louie? Come on, Louie. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Lou. Hi, it's Sarah. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. Um, we're having all you right. on first. You know, you have the honors and. Uh, we grew up together. We were playing mud pies and everything back east where we were born. And, uh, you know, all of us have traveled far and wide since then. And why don't you uh, give us a little recall of your childhood and everything else? Uh, first, we're living in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I remember growing up in there and living in... Uh, an apartment, and uh, me and my brother, <clears throat> excuse me, me and my brother were in the apartment, and my parents had gone out to go shopping. 
So uh, I get this crazy idea of uh, jacking up the bed, and I couldn't get the jack out, and my mother and dad come home and see that the jack's stuck underneath the bed, and my dad raised a little cane that time. But, uh, I don't... I, Louie, Louie, I didn't know you did that. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, okay, let me read a little bit of your your life, and then you you were uh, you're Lewis Harold Simpson the third, and I do have pictures up of our uh, grandfather, and uh, you live in Maryland right. with your wife of 34 years, Marion and their cat Dakota. You're the proud father of two children, Chris and Mary, and you're recently retired from your career as an apartment maintenance, and you're also for a trucker for a long while, and you enjoy fishing. Uh, home projects, music, and the movies. And Marion Simpson lives in Maryland with with you, and you're and uh, you're a loving, devoted mother and daughter. And you retired from your career as an artist and a photo retoucher. I'll never forget that creativity of your wife, and and she enjoys painting, right. ceramics, music, and movies. So uh, when uh, we were kids, uh, your uh, dad, you know, he was like the um, the son of an Iceman, and he worked so. He, did he ever tell you stories about your grand, our grandpa? Yeah, my grandfather was a powerful man, and what he said went. And my dad looked up at him, looked up at him a lot. He uh, idolized him, and uh, everything that he said was true. And that's how yeah, my grand my father learned was through my grandfather and he died at uh an early age as my dad was uh young I guess and uh so he had to grow out grow up without a dad. So he just remembered all the things that he had said to him and he used him in his life. Well, well, this is what he told me. He said to me that um, that he would ride along uh, with the horse cart in and, and the ice and help uh, Grandpa uh, Louie uh, carry the ice up and um, chop ice for the bars and big blocks of ice. Because people back then did not have electricity and refrigeration. And so that's when right. his father would talk to him. So he, he heard a lot about his father. Right. And he had polio while he was doing this, too. Yeah, he had polio. My grandfather, yeah. And then he had surgery at the Shriners. Right. And he overcame that. Go ahead, Charlene. Okay. And, you know, it's uh, what he told me is that his... The Grandpa Louie uh, never talked much, you know, and like you said, what he said goes, and he was, you know, the authoritarian around the house, and he had a bunch of kids to worry about, and um, that, uh, but then he would open up during these rides, because, you know, after a while, they moved from horses to cars, and then your dad would actually drive the truck after, first it was horses, then it was the truck, still delivering ice. And that they would run up, you know, uh, oh, gosh, you know, a bunch of stairs to get to the top, 
you know, and uh, I guess one day he made a mistake. And, well, uh, Grandpa Louie was able to cut the ice very uh, – in, in just these perfect blocks. And Uncle Louie couldn't your, – your dad couldn't do it. And uh, – but, however, one time he did drop a block and he scattered ice all over the floor. And so he was so embarrassed, uh, your dad ran out. And then uh, pretty soon uh, he filled up a bucket and brought it back in and delivered it. And then when he got back out to the car, uh, uh, Grandpa Louie said, well, you know, Lou, everybody makes mistakes, but your one mistake is that you didn't get a broom. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. Right. You should have got a broom and cleaned it up. Right. I don't, uh, I'm lost with, with for words. Well, it's, um, don't be lost for words. Don't worry. Why don't you tell us what it was like for you growing up? Cause we want to hear your story about, you know, how you felt about the, your mom and the family and, you know. Yeah. Well, I, when I was seven, I grew up with, uh, my mom, dad, and my brother. And we did things and, uh, what kind of things, dad? I don't know. Okay. Um, I'm lost for words. What was your favorite thing to do with grandpa? Fish. When I was little, we fished and went on rides and went to parks. Was Grandpa a good fisherman? Yeah. He was a good fisherman like me. Where did you fish? What was that, Mayor? Where did you guys fish? Uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. Did you fish in California? A couple of times. Did Uncle Wayne go? Yeah, Uncle Wayne went. Yes, and uh, we had a good time then. Do you mind if I read read something about uh, what happened uh, during um, when uh, they were quite young? Um, Your dad was only 14, and uh, my dad was like three years younger than that, so he was just like a baby. But um, let me see. Can I I read you some of his book? Right. Okay. Well, he said... um, as a passing thought, he's thinking about Pearl Harbor, and he said a couple years later, they had a recruitment drive to hire workers to go there, and I flunked the physical, and they gave all the applica- the applicants. I had to add that to a list of physicals I flunked during the war. He very much wanted to go to war. When I got home, I asked my parents if they knew where Pearl Harbor was. They did not know either. And then one of my sisters looked it up on the map and said it was not in America. It was an island of the Pacific Ocean. It was not a part of American mainland. I was only 14 years old when the war began, and my brother Chick was three years younger than I was. I did not believe that my parents worried about their sons going off to war right away. This was thought of a lot of parents on that day many years ago, although the military did not worry a bit about getting enough enlistments. He said he stayed in school a couple of years, but then he already told his parents he was going to quit when he was 16. So he started quitting and going on his own and being independent very early. That's what I got out of this. 
Yep. And then, uh, then there's some family history here that the it kind of sets things straight. I wish he had more dates, but it says uh, that from time to time, his, his your grandpa would ask if he would be him to babysit for the sisters after they got married and started families. He didn't want to, but he said he kind of made him made him feel grown up. And then uh, his dad asked him to babysit his sisters because he believed it was a good training for me, and it was. He said most of my buddies did the same thing. So nobody called anybody a sissy for babysitting their sister's kid. I mean, a fist fight if you did. It would mean a fist fight if you did. And anyway, this babysitting was doing, what he was doing was giving him a big reward. He babysat for his sister, Mimi, more than any of the other sisters. And then this is this is the part where it starts coming together about everybody that went to a war. And so after her husband, Luther Hackett, he called what he called Luke was was mobilized from the National Guard to the regular army. Their kids saw more than me as they saw their father, and because of this, they, they were he's close to De- Dorothy, Dennis, and David. So that how that that's how that comes in. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. See, yeah. and I'm um, I'm really glad that I have this because, um. You know, it made a bigger, uh, fuller picture of me. And I think that I have a picture of uh, Luther and my father, you know, in service uniform. And um, mm-hmm. I thought that was just uh, just so incredible and exciting, really. And uh, the, uh, the other history was the name of all the brothers. Okay, if he, he, if he had not married, you know, your, your, aunt, your aunt Mimi... I believe he would have joined the regular army as as his older brother had. He was next to the oldest in the family of six brothers. There was Gordon, Luther, Edward, so that's under Uncle Eddie Hackett, right? Paul, his brother, Joseph, and Robert. And he called them Bobby, and uh, they never lived close together. But anyway, they all went to war. I actually found everybody's war records of signing up in Springfield, Massachusetts. Mhm. That's amazing. It is amazing. So you know, one after another, there would be either a Hackett or a Simpson signing up for the war. So it was very, very interesting. Right. It was very then. important to Grandpa. Right. So you had enough of this, Lou? Do you want to just listen for a minute and? uh let uh, right, Mary talk. Right. right. Here, we're going to be on here for a while, so no worries. Keep listening. Okay. Because <laughs> we're all... <laughs> so, so, anyway... Oh, Charlene, I'm so sorry. <laughs> My dad likes no. talking on the phone less than yeah. Grandpa did. Oh, no, not another one. So, this yeah, is the really point. True. Listen, the listeners... We have an issue here is that second did not talk on the phone. Like we were talking and he would hang up on me. He didn't say and he said he was gotta go. Gotta go. That would be it. So we have another generation of uh people who don't wanna talk on the phone. <laughs> but any anyway. I'm making him nervous because he knows it's live. So at least, you know, we're all together and on here. That's the way I feel about it. You know what I mean? I think it's and wonderful. It's, it is wonderful. So 
let's keep trudging forward. So who wants to talk next? And then I was thinking, you know, I would play a little bit of that interview with Uncle Lou so you could hear his voice. So, so Marianne, tell us about what you what you know and experienced. Um, I I met um, Lou, senior, for the first time. I guess it was 1980, and uh, I uh, Lewis and I went up there to visit because he hadn't seen his parents in a number of years, like eight, nine. I don't know. But um, we drove up there, and and they were so glad to see him. And his dad was just overcome. He couldn't he couldn't get that big smile off his face. He got to see his first son. Yes. And um, yeah. And um, Kathy was thrilled too. I'm telling you, she couldn't she couldn't leave alone. She couldn't do enough for him. It was like, oh my goodness, my child is home. And uh, we stayed for, I don't know, four days, and uh, and we enjoyed ourselves. We went into the city. We went up to the uh, wineries, and Lou, Lou was a perfect gentleman. He was a very sweet man. He really was. So that's, you know, that's how a, a daughter-in-law that never got to see him much, that's how I yeah. remember him. Yeah, that's and, and nice. He's pretty funny in, in his own dry wit, very dry wit. Yeah. Yes, he, really. He did have a, you know, you're lucky because, you know, he did have like this wit that uh, could cut too. You know what I mean? He was yeah. uh, extremely brilliant and he could really stick it to you. This is what yeah, he said. This is what he said to me. This is what he said to me because I I go up every now and then and go because I'm in California, so I would drive up the coast and go see him. And uh, one day he got me. He said, uh, "Kid," and I go, "What, Uncle Lou?" He says, "You got a little larceny in your heart, don't you?" He's <laughs> like, "What the hell?" <laughs> was, that, <laughs> I was, like, was that like I had to. I don't know. He had. I had to look up larceny, like, well, and what kind of crime it was, and then, <laughs> and then I was like, I think you're right, Uncle Lou. I do have a little larceny in my heart. <laughs> so anyway, I had to, because what am I going to say? I know. Yeah. So he could get you and look right through you, you know. He scared my mother so bad. My mother could not talk to him. She stuttered. I said, Ma, Uncle Lou's on the phone. You want to talk to him? And she started stuttering. I was like, because my mom was like younger than the group. You know, my mom is still with us, you know. I think there's only two of them left. My mother is 80. And, uh, oh, gosh. Uh, Who just passed? I think one of the aunts just passed. Millie, I think. And there's only one left. And, uh. Anyway, whoever uh, family is listening, you know, call, you know, come and leave me a note and correct me. But anyway, so there's only like two of them left of a big group of people that they were they were really something else. Quit a crew. Right, they were. I met I met the aunts. Um, we went up to Massachusetts. We were living in New Jersey, and we drove up uh, for a 
family reunion, and they took lots of pictures. And we, I met, I met all the aunts because I had only known um, Aunt Minnie. Is that her name? Mimi. Yeah, Mimi. Oh. Mimi. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they called no, her Millie. Mimi. Millie, okay. I've got that all confused. Yeah, because I think <laughs> Millie is actually in... Uh, yeah, they do. Florida. Um, so, okay. anyway, um, I had I had been um, writing letters to her, and she wrote letters back, correspondence back and forth. And so when I met her, I was so... It was so nice to see who I had been writing to and talking to on the phone. And it, I, we had a good time. We had a good time. We did. I remember that there were a, there was a huge family there. So I many. Mary people. was there. Yeah. I had no idea the family was that big. Yeah, there were a lot. Of yeah, it's huge. Yeah, I was only like seven though. Yeah, because uh, if you, you know, the kids and their kids and all the cousins, second, third cousins, you know, there's still a lot of us, even though the originals have passed, you know, and then their parents have passed, you know, there's all of us, too, and there's a lot of us, and then there's more to come. We're not the end. There's okay. more after us. No. We're depending on you, Mary. No. <laughs> now I'm bringing up Mary. <laughs> Don't want to Oh, there's other ones somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> there is others. Uh, I have theories, but I don't know what to say about that. Because From your you Uncle know. Lou, mm -hmm. um, Mary's the last one. Christopher, well, Christopher has stepchildren. So um, they're still. That's right. Family. That's right. Yeah. And uh, they'll probably be coming on later when he gets home, because I told them. You know, you guys can come on the second half, but I, I don't think I've heard from him yet. But, um, okay. you know, if it wasn't for Mary and uh, Mary, your dad telling you to look me up, uh, we wouldn't have never had this and the things that transpired right. since then. You know, within, uh, you know, for the listeners, how it happened was is Mary did a search for me on Facebook, of course, and then uh, she found me and then it wasn't but the next day you know, that we had to share the announcement of what happened. That's how fast everything came down. So that's why we're, uh, we put this whole thing together. But, you know, I really feel like it's a God shot and it was supposed to be. And I, I feel, yeah, so you know, do you feel the same way? I do. It's like after so many years of not talking to you, because when I was a kid, we used to correspond writing and stuff. I used to talk to you all the time mm -hmm. when I was younger. Right. But then right. for so many years, I, I lost contact with you, and for for us to become in contact again, right when all of this was happening, is like fate. It is fate, you know. And I had such a, a miserable, uh, you know, horrible feeling, and like there was like I felt lost for family. You know, you feel that yearning that you want to be with family and all that, and then all of a sudden it. You know, it happened, and all that sadness went away. You know, we've had to deal with, you know, this this big loss. But, you know, he was really waiting a long time to be with Aunt Kathy, your grandma. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and it's a lot, that's all he talked about. Because I, when I visited him, because I love her so much too, Catherine, 
that, uh, you know, of course we would talk about her all the time, you know? Yep. I, I, he loved her like nothing I've ever seen. It was so deep and so intense. Well, he said that, yeah, he said that, okay, this is what he said, that he was working at the the matchbook company, and uh, he looked up, and she was up there, and she's the one who would uh, box the matches, you know, put them in there neatly and do that. And he looked up at her and flipped through the rafters, and she looked down at him and smiled, and he said, I'm going to marry her. Now, there were kind of, she was kind of, this one guy was kind of talking to her on the job. But but mm-hmm. uh, Louie, you know, just shoved him aside and just started seeing her for lunch. <laughs> yeah. He took over. And it's a good thing because we're all here now. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah we're all here. And uh, so it's just so romantic. And I could just see them because, you know, they're just a handsome couple. And, you know, everybody in the family is just so, so good looking. And I love everybody's pictures and everything. And... Uh, you know, it's just a romantic story. So I'm going to uh, try to play a little bit of this interview. And it's, we're going to do it, let's see, we're along just a few minutes. So hopefully we're talking. Let me kind of turn it up. Welcome Here to Staples. We Hi, Staples guy. I need school supplies for my kids, and I can't spend a lot. With Staples' 110% price match guarantee for back to school, find an item for less, and we'll match the price and give you 10% of the difference. So I'll get the lowest price on backpacks? Yes. Notebooks? Mm-hmm. Calculators? You bet. Even? Yep. Nice. Make low prices happen. Make 110% ready happen. Staples. Make more happen. Price match plus the 10% difference discount. Valid at checkout for items from retailers operating online and retail stores or products sold and shipped by Amazon. Valid through 919.15. See store or staples.com for details. Thank you, Blog yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were kind of trying to push it forward, but I, I can't fast forward it. I didn't know there was commercial. Yeah, they added a commercial um, as part of... Okay, so I'm going to let it roll, but I thought I had already... From Los Angeles, California. Welcome okay. To the parano- Sorry, people. I'm going to have to edit that out later. I'm just trying to skip ahead a little bit. Um, it, it took a, a minute just to even get it. Oh. It's my own voice. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't stand <laughs> So I'm going to let it run, hopefully. I heard him, I heard him talking for a minute there. So, uh, you know, anyway. It's uh, now... You know, I think we, why don't we just take uh, the opportunity of um, talking about how you guys met, Marion, you and Lou, and uh, a little bit about your life together. Would you like to, because you guys have been married 34 years now. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Are we on the air? Yes. Oh. This is all I live. See. It's all live. Okay. Um. Lewis and I met in San Diego 
um, 36 years ago. And, um, and uh, at first it was, uh, I thought, oh, who is this guy and why is he bothering me? And um, <laughs> from, there, from there we just started dating and it turned into what we have now, 30, we've been married 34 years. And we it's amazing. Mary, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. I love being a mother. When were, where, I know, when was Mary born? Mary, when were you born? 1982. That's right. We figured it out. Yay. Yeah, um, yeah because I cause remember when you were little, you know, I got all your letters from you. So when you actually contacted me on Facebook, I saw, thought you were like seven still. But <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, our, in our mind, you know, you're just always a kid, but you turn into a beautiful young woman, and, and you're you're married too, right? We're not married, but we've been together oh, you're not, for 10 years. Oh, you're, you're intending to marry. Intending to marry, sure. <laughs> oh. oh, boy, okay. I'm just giggling in the bathroom. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, um, let me play a little bit. I think I, I got it together here now. Let me just play some, and let's see what we got here. Okay. Hello, Blue. Welcome to the show. Hi. There oh, he is. Thank you there, Charlene. I'm glad to be with you. I love yeah, talking with you. We do. Uh, uh, some of my listeners, me and my Uncle Lou, uh, carry on these long conversations, and I've traveled in the last couple of days, probably around a thousand miles, to get up there and back to go see him. And uh, we had so much fun going all over Mare Island and seeing all of Vallejo. And uh, we had very deep conversations, and that's how I got the idea of uh, getting my uncle on the air. And we, he has written a book, um, an adventure's autobiography, it's telling about his life. And we are thinking about getting it through pub published. And, He's made many copies for the family members so that every family member would have it. But uh, Uncle Lou, um, would you like to tell us something about where you were born and where your parents were born? We'd like to hear about oh, your uh, Yeah, uh, I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts in uh, 1927, March 12th. And I grew up in that city, uh, went to school there up to the... Eighth grade, and then I quit, uh, not because I I was bored, but anyway, uh, I wasn't the only one at that time. Kids in my age group were all quitting anyway, but the war was on, and uh, we just uh, I don't know wanted to get out and see things went around town, but uh, you were born other than that, it was just, pardon. You were born in Springfield on the place called The Block. Do you want to tell us something about that? Yeah, Spring, uh, Springfield uh, is uh, one of the older cities in Massachusetts. It's one of the bigger cities. Washington came in uh, to Springfield to get rifles for the, Civil, uh, for the Revolutionary War. That's what made Springfield so uh, gun-happy that they... Uh, they had the Springfield Armory, which was a federal uh, uh, manufacturing 
federal guns for the army and so forth. But they, they closed that all down after World War II. So, and then Smith & Wesson is in Springfield. And they're still, I guess, going strong. But uh, they had uh, Savage Arms, I believe it was, was uh, just outside of Springfield. In other words, it was a, a locale that was doing doing a lot of gun work in that vicinity. And Hartford, Connecticut, which is uh, uh, own, no, only 25 or so miles away from Springfield, they made guns too. And they uh, with Springfield and Hartford and all through the, the which gun uh, section of the country. Right, and you did, uh, you worked there and uh you met a, quite a famous person there, didn't you? Because you yeah, uh, were... Yeah, uh, Princeville yeah, Armory, yeah. I was surprised that uh, one day I was uh, I was working on a, um, a machine gun barrels, you know, 50 caliber machine guns. Mm -hmm. And I, have, I was standing watching the barrels to see, see that they went through the proper functioning. And uh, I felt like somebody was staring at me. And so I turned around... And there was the high-ranking officer with a, a, a fellow st a civilian standing with him, and they were talking together. And what surprised me was that the, the fellow had long sideburns. And in Springfield, they, they were out of, uh, you know, they just uh, something that stands out because nobody had them. Nobody wore them during that time. But this fellow had them. And so... Uh, I looked at him and I nodded to him, and uh, he nodded back, <laughs> and uh, I went back to work. And uh, later on, when we had a break, I uh, asked one of the fellows, I said, who was that uh, fellow with the uh, long sideburns on? And he said, oh, that's Carbine uh, Williams. And Carbine Williams, I knew, was a... Uh, you know, he had a reputation for making guns and all that that went way back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was surprised that uh, that he was in there and uh, his he was in prison for life and he he got uh, he made the, his gun in prison. That's how how good the gun that he made, carbine the carbine he made. And uh, I bought one later on, see what it was all about and so forth. I was a gun collector for a while, Aaron, and it just faded out with me. I wasn't, well, there was a few months. Yeah, I wanted, what I wanted to interject yeah, here is that Carmine Williams was the first and the last federal prisoner to uh, able to make a gun in prison. They would never do that now. So, so what do you guys think about this, this recording and hearing his voice again? I wanted to, I wanted to to ask him a question. I swear. I know, I, I know. I just feel the same when I heard his voice and it made me realize that he's still alive in the hereafter. He's, you know, he's separate from us, but he's with uh, Kathy. And that's what I was thinking, that he's alive to us. Yeah, right. Really, I, I, I remember asking him questions and always knowing I was going to get an answer. No matter oh, what, yeah. and it would probably be half half hour long the answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this this is wonderful. 
Yeah, it is. And then, yeah, you're welcome. And then um, there's another part of his book, you know, I found this in chapter seven. It's something I didn't know, you know, because they were struggling. He was always looking for a place to work that he was compatible with uh, because he was well aware he didn't get along with everybody, that he bugged people. You know, he was aware of it. And he talks about it in his book because he was a hard taskmaster on himself. I think, I think it was more like people bugged him. Exactly. You know, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, There was like a a friction there and he couldn't find the, the comfort of a job. So he was looking and a lot of times they were out of money and, uh, he always felt that as a couple and as a two heads are better than one, uh, that he felt, uh, Kathy and I know that Kathy felt the same way that they were each helpmates to each other. And they were very serious about that. But one time, this is, uh, this is something I never knew before is that, uh, I'll read it. I'll read it from the book, chapter seven. And it says, had I returned to California a few years earlier, I would have felt I had accomplished an ambition. Now the events at hand were the most important things to accomplish. I had to get a job, a place to stay, and the money to get my family to California with me. The first priority was taking care of the most pressing problem, which was money. I went to a nearby pawn shop and hawked my tools. This gave me some immediate finances that I would need. I had to hawk my tools more than once in our early marriage, the early years of marriage. Kathy and I were steady customers of the pawn shops. During one dire financial emergency, Kathy even hawked my hearing aid. <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> I didn't. Did you, I never heard the story from him, but I guess you know it got so bad that they hawked his hearing aid. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't hear. I thought it was funny too, because that guy could not hear. You know what I mean? So he had to have his hearing aids in. And sometimes he didn't want to wear them, and he would not get on the phone because of it. So let's play a little bit more of what he's saying. So I don't. Let's see where we're at in the program. Okay, let's see. Finished listening to the radio. They'd all talk together, you know. But I was surprised the way they just sat quietly while he listened. But that's so the way, and uh, he just. Uh, well, that was the one that was back then. Excuse me, Uncle Will. Yes. That was the women's uh, role back then, to to sit and listen and be a helpmate, and that was the yeah, way it was. Yeah, I see the point, yes, yes. And that was probably it. But I was growing up and just learning things around me myself. And uh, right. it was surprising for me the way they quietly sat while he listened. Wow. That's what well, stood out to why I'm relating it now. It stood out in my mind. Right. Well, because I didn't, I've never heard that one before. It's, uh, oh, uh, you know, because our family is quite loud. Both sides of the family. Yeah, <laughs> we well, have a lot of, we have a lot had, of uh, Well, he had seven kids, and I had five sisters and a brother, and uh, one. Of the, we had eight all together, but uh, one a brother between my, myself and my brother died. So he would have had eight, oh. three boys and five girls. When did he die, Uncle Pardon? When did, the, when did the little boy die? Was he a boy or a baby? Uh, he died at, at childbirth, I guess it was. Oh. There wasn't much talk about it. In fact, 
I didn't hear it until years later from one of my sisters. But wow. they, uh, those people in those years were very closed mouth. And uh, when I used to ride around with them in the ice truck, if I started asking him questions about what he was telling me about, he would stop talking. I just I had to shut up and listen, or that was it. He would just stop and. Uh, but if I kept still, he would just go on and on and on and tell me, you know, just about everything he wanted to tell me. And he had a violent beginning uh, because uh, it was pretty rough. Uh, I loved him for that, that he got through it all, you know, and uh, it was pretty rough. Well, how old was he when he uh, married your mom? I don't know. He was uh, 35. Mm -hmm. He was 20 years older than my mother. And it was his second marriage. And uh, her father, who was in the Civil War, my grandfather, was uh, liked him. He respected him and liked him. But my father was uh, uh, likable that way. He was an honest man, straightforward. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, was respected that way. And uh, she... Uh, fell in love with him when she, she was only 15 years old. She was born in 1902, and they were married in 1917. And so uh, uh, he had his, they had the first daughter, which was my sister Mimi, in 1917. And uh, she was a very young girl. But in them years, uh, that was, that was all right. I mean, it's a, uh, they did that things that way. That he was, she was, oh, well, uh, he was twenty years older than she was. He was thirty-five. Well, was, he was that 15. was the norm back then, really. Pardon? And that was the norm. You know, it was normal back then. Yeah, I know. And they had so many kids because they wanted the kids for uh, to work for them. And uh, they, well, like my father was brought up a farmer. So they, they, the farmers all had kids, so they could help them on the farm. And so he carried them. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Uncle Luke. That's not right. That? Okay. Um, sorry, it's uh, my little friend. Sorry. Oh, your little friend? Um, that's my little furry <laughs> friend. Ava, you're going to have oh. to, I'm going to edit that out, so don't worry about it. So, um, <laughs> Hope I never did. Luke, uh, uh, I, what about Grandpa? Okay, let me see if I can stop. But, oh, it starts at the beginning again. Okay, so uh, the I took my dog up there, and uh, she's like a little half chihuahua, half terrier. And uh, he said, you can't take her someplace. She's making me nervous. She's walking around. I said, Uncle Luke, come on. That was rude. It's like I told him I couldn't come up dog. with. I had to bring my dog. She was just small. She's tiny, <laughs> and she Real. had two sides. And he had two sides. Smaller than a loaf of bread. <laughs> he invited me over there, then tried to throw us out. I didn't think that was right. <laughs> but, you know, but what happened is I don't know if uh, you know my cousin Lou has this issue, or but I maybe is that. You know, a lot of times I couldn't tell Uncle Louie I was coming because he would get so nervous waiting for me. You yeah. know what I mean? And he had, like, great anxiety. Yeah. And then I realized, you know, I kind of do the same thing. 
like the the anticipation drives me nuts. So I would drive all the way up there, believe it or not, without even calling. And then I would sit in front of his place and I'd call him. And he said, uh-oh, where are you, kid? I said, well, I'm outside the door. Come and have a cup of coffee. Well, you didn't call me. You didn't tell me before you came. I said, just come out. We'll go for a cup of coffee. So that was okay. Then, you know, later he would invite me in. He wouldn't just keep me out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But but if I told him ahead of time, I know that he would, get, he would get nervous. Yeah, yeah, he had told me in a letter that um, that he wished he had a place that I could come visit, but he was no housekeeper, and the place was a mess, so he couldn't invite anyone to visit there. So I think it was, like, anxiety about, you know, his appearance that he was trying to to present. He I know, but to, well, he didn't have to come to it was it was clean. He didn't have to do that. His house is always he's very neat, but he right. really I guess wanted to modern. He wanted to modernize. You know what I mean. So he wanted new carpet and do all this. You know, and none of that stuff. Right. You know, you love him so much. You just want to see him. I, you know, he finally got used to me, and he'd give me a little fold out bed. So I usually end up spending two hundred bucks because he would make me stay away the first day, because after all, I did go up there and announce. And then the next day he said, kid, what are you doing over the room? I said, because I'm tired. I'm putting my feet up. So I'll come over here and stay over here. So when I go over there, he had that little horrible bed, and I would lay on the lair. But, you know, we talked for hours on end. And boy, could he talk politics. Oh, my God. So thank God we're both Democrats because if he was a Republican, it would be hell on earth. You know what I mean? So I'm really glad. So tell us. He was a Democrat. So tell us. Yeah, he was a very, he wrote news to the newspapers. He he actually would follow what was going on in Congress. He would turn it on and watch the whole yeah. thing, whatever was going on. So tell us about uh, the little uh, Republican over there. Well, when, when um, Lewis was a, a very young child, his grandmother, Lou's mother, um, would, call, would talk politics with Lou, with her son, Lou, and, and it was, they were always, you know, button heads because he, he was a Democrat and she was a staunch Republican. And she, she started calling Lewis, my husband, when he was little, my little Republican. And it made your uncle Lou crazy. He would get (laughs) so upset. And when you'd bring it up, you know, years later, he would still get this look on his face. I thought it was a cute story. It's very cute, you know. And uh, you know, but he was a, uh, you know, Uncle Lou was right because we had uh, many uh, deep discussions about these things. And uh, one time he called me and he says, "Really?" He said, "I really want to talk to you about something." Because remember when that Matthew kid, because he was gay, he was murdered and hung on a fence? Do you guys remember that incident? Oh, yeah, in like, yeah. North Dakota or somewhere. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uncle Lou, uh, Louie was very upset about that. He called me and he said, I want to talk to you about something. So he asked what I felt like about the thing. He said, I am never going to disparage any gay person ever again. He said, this is the kind of discrimination that causes us hatred and you didn't want to be paying any part of it. That's the way he felt, you know, and he came from, you know, the Scottish, uh, 
you know, very, you know, strong boundaries of what they believe and they don't believe. He, he said he gave up. I said, Uncle, you're absolutely right. And I feel the same exact way. Why would we want to perpetuate any kind of hatred like that? I agree. I can't well, it's amazing it to hear. I, I remember that. Yeah. I remember speaking to, uh, to Lou about that. You know, you, you. I talked to him like probably the the weekend after all this came out in the news, and he yeah. did the same thing. But did you hear about this and how he felt Little about Lou? it? How? Yeah. No, your 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 uncle. Yeah. <laughs> My father-in-law, and yeah. um, little Lou. And, um, what what did he think I, about? I remember how. Well, well, it's an important uncle. issue. And look what's happened since yeah, then. Yeah, really. You know what I mean? And um, when he would actually write to the newspapers, his views and everything else. And he, was, he was very light, well liked by the editor over there. And uh, this is, and he, his feelings about uh, it didn't change his feelings about religion. I feel they would. He would tell me the way they would think about that. Um, they were like a more inclusive this spirituality that's the kind of religion they had if you want to call it religion i call it spirituality so they are most inclusive and he literally studied very deeply into the Upanishad. and um i'm going to read you something out of his book and this is uh i think page 111 chapter five anyway he said uh, many people do not believe the answers they were looking for can be found by their own efforts although i did not realize this i was one of them it is true that we all need help this does not mean the spiritual answers we are seeking must come through someone else. We are glaringly shown this in scripture. Seek and you will find. Sitting on the park bench, I knocked on, knocked, and the door was open for me. When I had read some of these beliefs in India, they were not much different than most other religions in the world. In India, when the people of one faith did not understand the people of another faith, they persecuted these people, implying that these people of another faith were demons. This gave the persecutors the idiotic excuse for slaying for these people. There have always been religious leaders who would use this, start, this search in spirituality seeking people to their own advantage. These religious leaders always sum up their accusations of people in other faiths the same way. They are demons and should be slain. Now this in the face of ISIS is, is incredible that he even wrote this, how important it is. You know what I mean? And look what's happening in the Middle East right now. He said, this exploitation of spirituality uh, of seeking people goes back in history as far as organized religion. Throughout this history, religious leaders of Christianity have been described in our Holy Bible as being the Word of God. This is sometimes only an exploitation of the faithful. Why do some religious leaders discredit the Bible by saying only those who believe every word of the Bible can enter heaven? God is not selective love. God is eternal love. God loves every person on earth whether God's followers have read religious books or not. So what do you think? Agree uh, on, with a lot of that and and totally believe that, well, I believe that God is everywhere and and I just had no, no idea that um, that other people felt the same way until I was an adult, you know? I. Mm-hmm. I just didn't get it. So yeah, Mary? it's um, Mary. I had no idea yeah. Grandpa was that spiritual. Like he's written to me before 
about spirituality, but I didn't know that he was so um, open to everything. It's kind of yeah, incredible, that huh, was Mary? A surprise. Well, when we talked about it, it was his leanings were actually like a Eastern mystic. And uh, yeah. that would surprise a lot of family members and people that know him, but it was more Eastern mystic. And uh, Kathy felt the same way. I mean, they agreed on a lot of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And but But he said that she would cross him because she didn't agree with, you know, uh, everything he did and said, you know, and so she would bring to his attention that he was lacking in some area and they would have knocked down, drag out, running around the trailer fights. He would take off. He didn't want to talk to her and he would get really mad. Then he had to come back because she was right every time. That's what he said (laughs) that she, she's the one who made him the man he turned into, you know, as a matter of fact, on her, her deathbed, this is what he told me. He said on on her deathbed, he asked, she asked him, are you the man you want to be? And he said, I am because of you. And Aww. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Aww. Beautiful. <laughs> I know, but it's true. Okay. So these loves are, you know, they go on forever. And I know that's still going on right now because she always looked out for him. You know, they did split up a few times temporarily, you know, because they just Mm -hmm. had about enough of each other, you know. But uh, Kathy was so smart on her own that she knew how to work with Uncle. I mean, you know, Lou. And then, uh, you know, sometimes he would be, I guess, he would just be stuck in his head. You know, and uh, they would separate for a time because she stubborn. came down, yeah, very stubborn. And, you know, that's a trait in our family of stubborn people. I am one of them. Mm-hmm. I will stand up now. I I really don't very like that, that um, so you like. So uh, Christopher and Dad. What? So is Christopher and Dad stubborn. Stubborn, you know, so... It's really runs in the family and uh, that it has caused a lot of conflicts with me and my sisters. I know that, you know, because we're stubborn and uh, we see things different ways. I don't know. I'm not fighting with anybody, but it doesn't mean that we're all talking either. Yeah. Which is not, which is not good. Okay. So let's see if we could just uh, find out where I'm at here. Grandpa yeah. wrote something to to me in a letter about his relationship and religion. Um, could I read it to you? Oh, I'd love to hear it. Okay. Every couple who really love each other have these healthy, growing pains in their marriages. This goes with learning the great myster- mysteries of life around them. Over the years, Mary, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Don't cry. We saw a lot of marriages of our friends fall by the way. And there were times when we thought our marriage would be among them. Wait a minute. <laughs> um, life can have okay. some very harsh lessons in these cases. One's faith can be very helpful in getting through these experiences. This is probably why your grandma Simpson and I studied different faiths as we did. We knew that through faith, help does come to those who ask. It does not matter what faith one follows to get to God. 
only that they respect their guide to God and what their guide is trying to teach them. Okay, that's all I can read. <laughs> it's beautiful. You know, it's, these are so treasured. Um, oh, boy. Um, just to be married that long and develop that kind of trust and love. Um, oh, we didn't say that uh, Kathy, uh, she died of celiac, and uh, her family was Irish, and she came from a huge Irish family. And uh, Lou, uh, uh, Lou II, he had actually helped out, and, and this, I don't know if you guys knew this, but uh, the Kathy's brothers and sisters were put in a, a home because of alcoholism in that side of the family in the in Kathy's parents, right? So all the kids, there was a bunch of them, I don't know how many, and someday I'm going to find out. They were all put in a home, and one by one, your dad got them out. That's wonderful. Yeah, he one yeah, by I, one... I, he said he'd stay. He said because they were up to a lot of shenanigans, he couldn't keep them long. But he got one by one. He took them all out. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Sorry. Did what? I was, was going to say that. Oh, which <laughs> there's like this time delay thing going on. Um, yes, go ahead. Kathy once told me. Um, about the, her time that she went to live with her aunt in in New York City and about how it was in New York City back then and how she enjoyed uh, the Italian families uh, because her, you know, her family was messed up and, and uh, you know, they were all warm and loving and, you know, invited anybody in to eat, you know, that whole manja manja thing and uh how much she enjoyed that and uh, that was like wonderful memories for her of her time in new york with her aunt. just right throw yes that in. yes definitely because i think that back then and it might still be there i don't know she's talked about the automat how you have a quarter you stick it in there and get a sandwich out of the wall that was yeah, kind of in- enjoyable <laughs> that's right it was called that's right it was called what? Porn and hard arts. It was. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what to tell you. That's what it was called. It was a company Wait. that made cake and stuff, and um, and the, you know, pot pies and macaroni and cheese, and it was all in these little glass doors. Yes. And, like they just kept putting it in hot, you know, and you'd put your your money in the little slot. And you'd open the door and take your food out. <laughs> it was really cool. Right. So, you know, and she, she actually liked that freedom and everything else. And, uh, you know, and uh, she stayed, uh, she came and visited with us uh, and uh, spent a week once. And uh, I, that's when she brought me a set of dishes. And um, I loved them very much. They're white and uh, china with little red roses on them and uh, that's what's going to marry that's what i'm sending her so i've already talked to you two about it and i'm so glad that i have something of hers you know to share and uh 
I hung on to those dishes because they mean so much to me when so much has happened. I don't know how many times I've moved, how many years have passed. Many since you gave those to me. Maybe, well, definitely more than 10, more like 15. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, a lot. Um, okay. Mary was, was just saying, okay, um, that um, that she wished she had stuff of Grandma's after what happened with the whole mess yes. up there in Vallejo. Yeah. We... Um, you know, she didn't think she was ever going to get anything. And then you tell me that you have these dishes you're going to send her. And I was so yeah. happy to hear that. But, I was uh, crying. Seriously, you made me cry because <laughs> I was so happy. Well, it's a, it's just supposed to be. I, I can't uh, share enough of of what uh, how things are, are fitting together. It's just a beautiful thing. It's almost like they're helping us, you know, get this whole thing together. So. And, yeah. I really believe that they are. And I want to tell you, I don't know if uh, he, I have him on tape telling this story, but I'll tell you the story. It's about when he traveled to Louisiana. And let me hear where we're at in this tape right here. Let me see what he's talking about. After World War II. So, and then Smith & Wesson is in Springfield. Oh, they're still, I guess, going strong. But uh, they had... Uh, Savage Arms, I believe it was, was uh, just outside of Springfield. In other words, it was a a locale that was doing. So uh, let it go for a little bit farther. They really need to be able to adjust this so they can move it forward faster. But anyway, um, this would happen. So uh, Lou was actually hitchhiking across the United States, and he said it was uh, pretty dangerous during the Depression because people would rob you and stuff like that. But he was like uh, shooting pool and earning money as a pool shark. Actually, <laughs> wow. He said, "I know." He said he, he said that uh, Kathy had changed him from all that. That he gave it all up. But this is how he gave it up. He was in actually in uh, Louisiana by himself, sitting on a bench, and he was alone. And then a couple sat across from him, and uh, they were in love. And he said he was watching them. And that that's when he realized that the world, you know, is meant for two. That you shouldn't be by yourself, you know. And that and then he told uh, Kathy, and they they you know they met up and everything else, and and things happened after that. But he said he had a very odd, strange experience out there in Louisiana. He was traveling down a road hitchhiking when uh, it turned incredibly black, so black that he didn't know where he was, and he got very disorientated. He set his suitcase down, and he said he sat down because he thought he was going to fall off the earth. And he said he was just sitting there for a while in the in the dark. He said it was so dark, he could not walk, he couldn't do anything. He could just sit down, he didn't know up from down or anything. He just figured out that gravity would hold him sitting, you know, and he was really disorientated. And then he said... From a distance, like way off, there's a light way off coming towards him. And it looked. then it got closer. He said it looked like uh, the headlights of a car. And then he said he knew that car was going to stop for him. So the car pulled over. The guy had a hat and an overcoat on, never looked at him, just opened the door. He got in, and they silently went to drive towards the town. 
but the, he said the next recollection he had was sitting up at a coffee bar in a diner and having a cup of coffee. And he said he didn't remember anything after that. Because I asked him, did you have any kind of strange experiences? He said, yes. And he said that was one of them that uh, he didn't know what had happened. And he still doesn't know. And I said, that is so strange, Uncle Louie, because when I was up in, I lived in upstate New York when I was a kid. I must have been about 11. I was walking home. And all of a sudden, the same thing happened to me, a dark, so dense. But I laid down on the ground on my stomach because I was afraid I was going to fall off the earth. I remember feeling the ground felt weird and I was trying, just trying to hang on and not spin off the planet. And it was pitch black and I figured that, okay, I'm not going to fall down. I better go home. I was just terrified. And I told him that, I said, that's pretty peculiar that two family members would have like the same really bizarre experience. So I knew exactly what he was talking about. But I don't remember losing time. I just remember getting up and then running home. So let's see where we're at in this thing now. Hold on. Wait, I his life bonus, that's what they call it, a combine. Pardon me? Pardon me? <laughs> did, he say something, did he say something before about sitting on a bench and having a door open? No. Or did he say that? Huh, I wonder who said that. That was weird. It might have been. And then you... And then then you just started talking about him sitting on a bench and seeing the lovers across from him. Wait, and it, wait a minute. <laughs> well, there's something, okay, there's something paranormal going on here. And he didn't tell me everything because I know he was in aerospace and all that, but I've had a lot of many strange experiences. That's why I started the show. In October, it'll be three years. I started it because all these weird experiences. That's why I joined that club I mentioned and stuff like that. Because I had a lot of weird paranormal things. Let me see where he's at here. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Uh, my dad, yeah, he was an ice man, you know. He, he peddled okay, ice. Okay, here we go. And, uh, he didn't have much education at all. At, uh, at 14 years old, he ran away from home. He lived in Nova Scotia. And uh, at 14, uh, he ran away from home and... It, uh, it was too young for a guy to run away that way. And he never had any uh, education, you know, formal education, other than read and write. In fact, mm -hmm. when he got married, my mother told me one time, she, <laughs> he had trouble with his eyes, and uh, she wondered if he could read. It, it was just uh, he could read all right. It was just he couldn't uh, see too good. He got glasses, and he was all right. Read the paper, yeah, I didn't. So. Yeah. But when he ran away, Uncle Lou, when he ran away from Nova Scotia, where did he go? What was his travels like? Uh, he was he stayed up there in Nova Scotia for a while. I don't know the exact year he came down to America, but when he did, uh, he was here a while, and then he brought all his sisters. It was about four, I guess, of his sisters. He brought down here too, and they they always were. Loved him for that, and they used to come and visit him quite often, you know. And you'd see all the four sisters, and they would sit quietly while he was listening to the radio, and after he finished listening to the radio, they'd all talk together, you know. But I was surprised the way they just sat quietly while he listened. <laughs> but that's so the way, and uh, he just uh, Well, that was the woman's role back then. 
just that was a women's uh, role back then to to sit and listen and be a helpmate, and that was the yeah, way it I worked. see your point. Yes, yes, and that was probably it. But I was growing up and just learning things around me myself, and uh, right. it was surprising for me the way they quietly sat while he listened. Wow. That's what well, stood out. To why I'm relating it now? It stood out in my mind. Right. Well, because I didn't. I've never heard that one before. It's uh, uh, you know, because our family is quite loud. Both sides of the family. <laughs> Yeah, we well, have a lot of, we, we have a lot of had, uh, Well, we're, he had seven kids, and I had five sisters and a brother, and uh, one of the, we had, had eight all together, but uh, one a brother between my, myself and my brother died, so he would have had eight, three boys and five girls. I just never knew... I never knew about uh, the little boy, and I don't know if he what happened with him or is he buried or anything, but from his book, um, I'm going to read something out of here. He said, he carried the grief of his dad's passing for a long time after his death. I was very close to him, and I believe he knew it. At night before I went to sleep, I would often cry. What the, the Then one night I had a dream where my dad came to me, oh my goodness, and told me to stop crying. The dream did help me, and I did stop crying. I still missed him, but I no longer felt my grief in overwhelming tears. I went to the funeral parlor and saw my dad laid out in his casket. I did not go to his funeral. When I saw him in the casket, his features to me looked like wax. I wanted to remember him as he was. Thankfully, Mom respected my feelings and did not press me into going. The whole service would have appeared unreal to me and would not have helped me with closure. And then he said he would... He said he should add that he came back from Carolina Beach. He started looking at his dad more critically. He was getting older, and he did not like his dad talking about his mom in a way that he believed was a very harsh manner. And then he imagined he was beginning to believe marriages should be like I watched in the movies that he went to see, and couples talking in soft tones with one another. And he said, uh, one, one day my mom and my dad were in their bedroom getting ready to go somewhere, and my dad was angry at something. And he was talking in an angry tone to my mom. For whatever reason, I went into their bedroom and told my dad to stop hollering at mom. And my dad gave me a startled look, and he pointed to the door and said, get the hell out of here. I turned and looked at my mom and said, you're all right? And she nodded, and she was fine. Then I turned and left the bedroom. He said, in the past, my dad did not like anything I said or did, but when we were together in the ice truck, he would bring up the subject, then tell me what I said or he did not like. I kept waiting for him to bring up the subject of my yelling, him to not talk, holler at my mother. Then he reprimand me for talking that way to my father, but he never brought up the subject. And then he never once corrected him. So uh, I know there there must have been alcohol involved and everything else, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a I think that was a lot of it because, you know, my dad. I remember that from my childhood too. Unfortunately, it was the same way. You know. These are very special people, you know, that we love very much. But there was like the disease of alcoholism, and it it caused problems. And uh, I think the last day that my grandfather was alive, I think he kicked my father. Because my dad said something, and my father felt, you know, was like, I don't know. 
And then my my dad walked away. I think my dad was 15, and he walked out of the room, and then uh, he died right there. And my dad always felt real bad about that because he was being a brat. How did he die? He had a heart attack. Great grandpa. He had a yeah. heart attack. Okay. Yeah, he had a heart attack. Yeah, because my dad had a bad heart and eventually died from that too. So, you know, all of us have to watch it. So let's let's listen a little more. About your father's other family. He was married before. Did he have a family? No, I don't know. I know one of his sons was out, lived out here in California. I heard that years back. But other than that, like I say, they never talked about uh, anything that way. And uh, you couldn't so, ask questions. So, and, uh, so that, that means I, I have more relatives here in California uh, that I don't know about. That was the yeah, way they right. were, at least in my family. The other families, of course, were different. But, and I and. My family was pretty much the norm for our strata, and uh, yeah. we're all working people and so forth. Like I said, yeah. he was a nice man, so he wasn't uh, didn't have a very big income, and uh, uh, we, we and he had to have big high apartments because uh, he had a big family, and uh, he wasn't able to buy a house until a year before he died when he. He bought the house, and a year later, he was dead. And I, I wow. was 16. When he was Pardon? 16. Right. So how, um, so my father, who has passed away, uh, he's your younger brother. My dad's name is Charles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my and, brother uh, Charles, yeah. We called him Chicky. And Chickie. he didn't like that. He wanted to be called Chuck. I he never called him Chuck. <laughs> Just my mother called we, him we, Chuck. We all, everybody called him Chicky. Yeah, I don't know why we did But you remember, they, everybody called him that. Is Chick home? They wouldn't say it's Chuck home. I suppose your friends did, didn't they? Or my, uh, you know, my friends would call him Mr. Simpson, so they never used his first name. But my mother called him Chuck, but. Uh, Chuck. Arlene always called him Chicky, and so did his co-workers and everybody else. Yeah, I know he wanted to be called Chuck, but we 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 called him Chick for so long that we were just locked into it. We didn't we didn't know any other way. We weren't trying to you know be uh, rough on him. It was just, just a natural thing to call him, you know. Right. But uh, so. Uh, so you rode on the ice truck with your dad and made rounds with him. Did you carry, help him carry the ice up, or were you driving? Oh, yeah, that... yeah. He, uh, he uh, taught me all that. He, they used to, uh, he used to work and bring shaved ice in the, to the bars, you know, and they, they'd pack that shaved, shaved ice around the spigots where the beer come out so it would be nice and cold when you drank it. And I used to shave that ice for him so that he... You know, uh, when he was in there and packing the bar rooms, it, uh, I'd have, be out there shaving the ice. Well, I was only a kid, so I couldn't uh, go in the bars and all that. I used to carry uh, some some of the shaved ice in for him, but uh, I wasn't too steady on my feet because I had polio when I was uh, three years old and uh, and I had it in the, my right side and. Uh, I had a limp there for a long time. I still got it in my old age. Come back. 
Well, that's, yeah, that's part of your story is that you did overcome polio and some other illnesses as a child. And you want to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, I had asthma on top of that because we lived in uh, Springfield, which was a smoky town. And the, the cheapest places to, to live were always near the railroads and all that where all the smoke was. So you, you had a double thing against you that way, too, that uh, you have to live in those areas that were bad for you because that's all you could afford. But they did their best, and they brought the kids up, and uh, they did the best that way that they could do. But how did, how did you in those get years, it was very difficult. It was the depression was on, and wow. that depression was horrible. But uh, even as a kid, I remember it was rough uh, because a lot of fist fights. Uh, you want to get a kid in a fight, we just uh, tell him they were on welfare or something like that because. That was the worst thing you could be was on welfare, and you didn't have a job, and and top it all off, nobody had a job. Very, very difficult times, you know, and I lived through them all, and that's why, uh, one, one reason why I always wanted to create jobs if I could, right. and that's been my pursuit in life, is uh, put back in what I took out, because it's if I hadn't had to do work to do, I, I never would have made it. I, I couldn't support myself. I had to go out and work for a living. And so if I couldn't find my job, I couldn't support myself. That's right. Well, what made you write your autobiography? How did that happen? Pardon? What made you write your autobiography? Oh, I, I told my family I would, uh, uh, I would put it all down because they used to ask me, you know, what did you do when you were out in California, and why did you go there and there and that? And one day I, I just told him, I said, I'm going to write a, my autobiography, and I'll, uh, I'll give you all a, a copy of it. And uh, I didn't write it for money. If uh, somebody said to write it for money, I wouldn't have wrote it. But uh, I wasn't that interested. It uh, didn't catch my interest. But when the family said they wanted to know, I put it all down as well as I could remember it, you know, and uh, enjoyed it. And I did what I said I was going to do, which was important to me. It's really important. I, mean, I feel so uh, grateful to have, you know, a copy of it, and uh, I think it is uh, worthy for publishing because it's very interesting. And uh, you've done a lot of uh, writing and also letters to the editor, and I just oh, have yeah, that was a hobby of mine. And yeah. I started, that started in school, when I was in school, starting me off on it. First thing was, they, when the war broke out, we all were, were going to write a president, write to President Roosevelt and fought the war. And uh, the best letter would be sent to the President Roosevelt. And my letter that I wrote uh, was chosen, and they sent it to him. And he answered it, and the the answer to his letter was up in the school uh, hallway for the longest time, you know, that uh, President Roosevelt did, read the letter and answered it, you know. Being FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Pardon? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that's uh, very impressive, Uncle Lowe. Yeah. Being FDR? 
Yeah, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right. Right. And Paul uh, oh. Roy was on, and uh, it was, uh, I, I was, uh, I guess I turned 17, I tried to get in the Navy room, and I couldn't get in because of my hearing, because I had a problem with my hearing, and I just still got it, but, and I had the polio, and it, it, I tried to keep, keep getting in, and I got so I had to go down and they got to know me for when I go in and try to take the physical, and they tell me, no, you know, no more than taking physical. So well, at that go down time, bus, everybody, to get everybody, in there. everybody wanted to go to, to the war. And you tell oh, me. Oh, yeah, because the, all my friends went. And, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Everybody, everybody was going. Yeah. So. For my listeners, my uncle had a, a great desire to go into World War II, so... Uncle Lou, I want you to tell me, so what happened when you gave, uh, tell me the story about the ID switch. Come on, we're going to hear What do you mean? You, you I'm not with you. wanted my dad to go in your place, so he would pass the physical. So then what happened? Oh, what yeah, happened? yeah. Uh, I had my brother take, your, your dad take the physical for me, and the way they did it, he couldn't get a hold of me, and they shipped him out. <laughs> how, old was, how old was my dad? Oh, he was uh, 17. 17? Yeah. I was older then, you know. Mm -hmm. I was about 18. I was uh, I was three years older than him. So they shipped my dad off, and didn't he end up in Germany? Yeah, he did. Let me figure that out now, uh, how yeah. old he was. You're catching me off balance yeah, he, I was three years older than him, but he was big for his age. He was still, he stood taller than me, you know. You noticed that, didn't you? Yeah. But anyway, uh, he uh, they, he didn't have a chance to get a hold of me. I said, I had worked the night before, and I said, just as soon as you pass the physical, call me, and I'll go go down to the train station, and you know, go to, when they ship you out to the uh, the army base, I'll go. And uh, when I woke up, he had already shipped out because they didn't let him a chance. And uh, he uh, he was uh, he went over to Germany, and and my mother told me uh, to not you know just let him go through it; it would do him good, you know. And uh, her her father was a soldier, as I said earlier, in the Civil War, and he <laughs> fought. Daddy's uh, little. Pardon. Thaddeus Little. Thaddeus Little, yeah. And he uh, he was in on that raid to get, uh, uh, trying to capture uh, Robert E. Lee, you him? know, and uh, yeah. President, he got a bullet in him, uh, got shot mm -hmm. when he was doing it, you know, and he had a bullet in yeah, his so, shoulder. So and now was, we know. So now we know we're Northerners. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. Yes, we fought on that side, and we're the Northerners. So uh, uh, let's see. I wanted to read this little uh, another thing out of his book that just was so uh, touching to me. And uh, I found out about Kathy and our relationship with each other. It was very important to her that she was trusted. I believe this is important to every kid, especially girls who come from broken homes and live with others. She told me of several experiences when she would 
have been trusted and was not. I could not help but marvel at her attitude towards life, also the way she accepted failures in others. I could never be accepting as she was, and I know my life could have been fuller if I had. In fact, that Kathy wanted to go to California and help me from getting frustrated. I, I knew if the opportunity ever arose that would allow us to go west, there would be nothing between us that would block our way. Kathy enjoyed visiting with her father and brothers, but she let me know she was married to me. I was very glad for Kathy that she could be around members of her family. They were very important to her. I love my family, but it never stopped me from going from where I felt I must go. I showed Kathy the necessity of one having a life, a purpose in life. She enjoyed learning from me as I did learning from her. All couples, couples learn from each other. If they really wanted to go on in life to where they are satisfied, we helped her two brothers out as much as we could, and I respected her parents because they brought Kathy into the world. Her father and I had a strained relationship. Her oldest brother was living with her father, and her youngest brother, Frederick, was still in the ward of the state. And in order for Freddie to be able to be with his family, we took him to live with us. This made Kathy very happy. Whatever made her happy also made me happy. And I knew what I had in Kathy. Neither Kathy's father, father or mother ever able to achieve an anchoring point in their lives. Booze always got in their way. Whether their boozing was started by the Great Depression, one will ever know. Anyway, you could tell the love and uh, how he admired, you know, Kathy so much, you know. And she yeah. had a lot to rise above, and she did. She was a very interesting person. Yeah, she was. She was strong. And another, yeah, very strong. And another thing, she really admired the Native American culture. Mm-hmm. And her her spirituality really leaned towards that. Yeah, and and yeah, and there's another thing that I keep remembering. She forced me into celebrating Bastille Day. I don't even know why. <laughs> she would send me stuff, and I was like, I don't believe in Bastille Day. I think it is French. I said, I don't know what I have to do with it. And she would still celebrate it every year. She was big on Bastille Day. You know, I can remember from from you know being a kid that my grandmother would send me something for every holiday. Like, it could be Kwanzaa, and she'd send me a <laughs> Like, any, she was just open to celebrate everything. Everything was special for her. You're so right, yeah, she, Mary, because she, she sent me, she sent me lots yeah. of stuff. Lots of, she would send fudge. She would just send all kinds of stuff, you know. And I'm going to try to find out what Bastille did is right now. <laughs> <laughs> A-S-T-I. So I would just say, you know, storm the best deal. I don't know, but she made me do it. She would call, even call and say, you know it's best deal day, right? I'm going, okay. Isn't it like, <laughs> um, the, they, they let all the prisoners in France out of the Bastille uh, because... Oh. Of, uh, I have no idea. Oh, and there's a, it's the day after my birthday. And she never oh. forgot a birthday. Oh, I get it now. Find out exactly what it, what, what it is, though? Now we know. Okay, right now I'm, I'm looking it up. So uh, she was big on Bastille, and it was a French revolutionary that stormed the Bastille. And I thought it was lib- they wanted to liberate... Um, Okay, okay. French Revolution. This happened in 1789. 
and she insisted on celebrating it. Yeah, the Parisian revolutionaries and mutinous troops stormed and dismantled the Bastille, a royal fortress that had come to symbolize the tyranny of the Bourbon monarch. And this dramatic action signaled the beginning of the French Revolution, a decade of political turmoil and terror in which King Louis the five, six, fourteenth was overthrown and tens of thousands of people, including the king and his wife, Marie Antoinette, were executed. Now we know. That the whole story between, between Marie Antoinette, July 14th, we must celebrate. Now I said it was nothing, and look. But it was. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's when they got Marie Antoinette and all that. So, dang it. I love that story. Didn't they cut her I, head off? Uh, unfortunately, yes. But I love the yeah, music. And, and I, was, I love the music of that one, uh, Marie Antoinette, the more recent one with, uh, what was her name? Oh, what's the actress? Anyway. Excellent. And it had kind of punk rock music to it and all that. I don't know if you guys seen that movie. I know what you're talking about, but I can't say yeah. that. I, can't. I don't know if I saw that. Yeah. It's Marie Antoinette. <laughs> is that the, the name of the Natalie movie. Portman? Natalie Portman. Okay. No, it's more like Claire Danes looking, but it's not Claire Danes. It was. Okay. It, anyway, I love it and I love the, the music and everything else. So, uh, now we know why we should celebrate Bastille Day, and I will do it. But but then we're kind of celebrating the chopping of Marie Antoinette's head, right? I know, right? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, let's play a little Uncle Louie because... A little <laughs> wow, we're like in our last... I know, <laughs> okay. Let's uh, go back to Uncle Louie because he has a lot to say. Okay. So, because we only have like okay. 20 minutes left. So, let me get, let me get him uh, back up here. Come on, Kalu. There you go. Here he is. Check within the city limits. More than one city I had to walk through before I could hitchhike. And, uh, that was a task sometimes because it would be a big city. And they're getting across the uh, Mississippi River was a problem because you couldn't hitchhike on the bridge, you know. And unless you got a ride that was going across the bridge. You just couldn't get in, and uh, it was difficult, but we, we had fun all the way. So I did a lot of it. Yourself? like it. Yeah, I I traveled uh, alone. There was a saying in them years, he who travels alone travels farthest, and yeah. I, I like that. It uh, rang a bell with me. And I you went all the way out here. God, yeah, I, I forgot he was... Uh, all over. I got involved in hitchhiking was out of stupidity on my part because uh, I had saved up the money to go to California because your grandfather always was talking about going out to California when the road with him on the ice truck. So I got fired up to go out to California. So I saved up the money to go, and I, I got to as far as Las Vegas, and then I went bonkers, and uh, I guess I was overtired or something, and uh, I, you know, 
bus stopped in Las Vegas. I got took a tour of the city, and I started gambling. Lost all the money I had. I mean, all of it. And when I uh, when I left uh, Las Vegas, I was in shock. It, uh, I had spent all the money. I didn't have any money for transportation. I had no no money for nothing. And uh, I had to uh, go see the. I told your mother, your grandmother, that I, I would look up her brother when he, her brother lived in, uh, oh, someplace outside of L.A. I can't think of the name of the city right now. But I told him I'd look him up and we'd say hello, you know, because I thought I was going to work right away. I had it all planned how I was going to do, but I never thought I'd go bonkers in uh, Las Vegas and just lose it all, you know, and I did. And I was sitting on a bus. I'll never forget that. I was in shock. I didn't know what I did. And by the time I got to uh, about 300 miles from uh, uh, Vegas to L.A., and uh, when I got there, I was really in a bad way. But I saw my uncle, and I didn't tell any of them that I was broke. But after I did what I was supposed to do, and... I started back. I had the uh, envelope that uh, my bus ticket was in that I carried with me and had the map of the United States on it with the routes on it. And so I used it as a map to get back back home on. And I carried that envelope and put it in my belongings back east when I got there and kept it for years. But it took me eight, year, eight days to get back. And yeah. What a trip it was. Wow. So when you got back, uh, what did you do once you got back to Springfield? Yeah, well, that's that's when I met your aunt. And, that's uh, what I was leading I was, up to. But, yeah. Yeah, when I got to back, I was going to get the money up. And this time I wasn't going to stop in Las Vegas. I was going to go right through to L.A. and, and go to work. But... Uh, <laughs> I met. I worked at the Diamond Match, and your your aunt worked there too. And when I saw her, that was it. No more California. No more nothing. She just turned me upside <laughs> well, down. Us, really. Tell us the details. So you were. What kind of work were you doing at the factory, and what was she doing? Oh, she was a, a match. Uh, they the girls were hired because they could count. 50, 25 books of matches and put, pick them up and put them in a box and pick up 25 more and put them in the box and then you've got 50 books of matches in each box and they'd be exactly that count. You could count, count any box that they made and they'd have the exact count in there. They just, the girls could do that and your aunt uh, Dushy had that touch and when I, my job was to, uh, when she got these boxes loaded with the 50 uh, books of matches, you know, and put them in the boxes, I put them boxes in another big box and then put them in storage and then they'd ship them out. Well, when I was, uh, I opened the boxes up that I put them in and then put, put uh, tape on them on the bottoms and so forth and so that I could fill them with the boxes she loaded and then I put them in the warehouse 
But when I looked up and I saw her, she was smiling. And I was walking, as I was walking away to get uh, some more boxes for her, I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And I, mm -hmm. I hadn't, I didn't know whether she was married or not. But she knocked me for a loop. That, uh, that smile, I just did it. And uh, and we, we met, and uh, I didn't even know if she was married or not. As it was, she was going with a fella. And I don't mm -hmm. That's a story, I know. But I, well, you know, they told me, it. you know. They, they gave me the silent treatment and let me know she had already had a boyfriend, you know. And right. uh, when you're working with, if they give you the silent treatment, you can't really work because you have to have. Okay, you know, I have a message uh, from, uh, hold on a minute. I have a message from Barbara Dexter, and uh, I'm going to read it to you. And she's in Connecticut. She's the only sister left in the Uncle Lou's family is Millie. She's living in Florida with her daughter, Sandy. My mom, and she just got through talking about Doris Duchy Scala, was the one who passed away in March 2014. I became first book friends with Charlene when she saw that I was friends with another cousin when my mom passed away. And I'm listening right now from Connecticut. My mom loved her brother Louis very much. She kept in touch on a regular basis, and I let him know when she passed on. At that time, he shared some wonderful stories about my mom, and it was a comfort to talk with him. And then she says she's going to send me the obituary and that um, that that she read at her mom's and things she read at her mom's funeral uh, that includes some stories uh, from Uncle Lou to share with him. And uh, Barbara Dexter says to Uncle Lou's family that I'm sorry for your loss. And uh, let's see. I think I can open this document. Let me try it. I don't know what's going to happen. I could blow up the world. <laughs> I hope you know that I am don't open it. You know I am at the cylinder right now, so you never know what I'll be up to here. So let's see. I think I'll be able to get it without crashing things. Okay, let's see. Okay, open, open, open. Okay, because I think this is this is being sent by another cousin and she's in Connecticut. Oh. You guys know? Yeah, so she's Dutchie's daughter. Oh. Yeah. Doris Scala. So this is, so is Dutchie's, yeah, this is Dutchie's daughter and that's a message from her to the family. So she's giving her regard and I'm desperately trying to open a document and I just don't know if I can do it fast enough. Yeah, if it opens, I'll start. So let's just listen to a little bit of Uncle Luke, because I think... Oh, Can I tell okay, you, did now. you know that um, that Grandpa was afraid of heights? He is? I didn't know that, and he wrote it. He wrote it to me once that he was deathly afraid of heights, and that oh. whenever um, they would do something where it involved heights, Grandma, your Aunt Kathy, would do it by herself, like... She took a helicopter ride over Alcatraz by herself while Grandpa waited. She went up to the Space Needle and had lunch by herself <laughs> while Grandpa waited wow. because he just wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. But I won't. I won't either. I'm deathly afraid of heights. I would never go up in that needle. And I did one helicopter ride one time. That was it. I'll never do it again. 
Wow, I didn't know that. He wrote something here, it's real quick, if I could read it to you. Go ahead. Please both do. your, both your, both your grandmother and Ka- both your grandmother Kathy, that is the nickname I gave her when we were going together, and I respected each other's phobias. I cannot remember <laughs> any phobias. I cannot remember any phobias that she had, but of course she did have, as we all do. I knew that whatever phobias phobias she might have, they were part of making up the wonderful person she was. You can be very proud of your grandmother, Mary. She was the world to me. Yeah. Oh. Wow. It's so, it's just wonderful. You kept those letters. I have everything in boxes because I I just uh, had to get rid of so much stuff and sell it, and I donated many of my things to the VA, but I have kept all her letters somewhere, and uh, um, we'll have a part two sometime. And um, I just am waiting for this thing to open. I just can't. I'm sorry, Barbara. I can't open it. Okay, so that that's uh anyway, much love from uh Barbara and um my stuff is flowing down here. We only have a few more minutes and um does uh anybody have anything particular they wanna share, like um anything? I remember the time that the only personal time that I had with my grandparents when I flew out there when I was ten. And it was the first time I had gotten on a plane in New Jersey with my dad, and we went out there together. It was the first time I went anywhere without my mom, so I was kind of terrified. But grandma and grandpa were very, like, welcoming, and they made me feel comfortable. The moment I got off the plane, I didn't feel, like, overwhelmed anymore. But then I had this tragic experience where they had this little space heater in the bathroom, and I got out of the shower and burned my leg (laughs) on, um, on the space heater. And they they just lost it. They were panicking because their granddaughter had just burned herself. And they brought me out to the couch, and Grandpa's freaking out. He's yelling, get the butter. And Grandma's yelling, no, 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 vitamin E, not butter. And my dad's running around frantically trying to follow the instructions of his parents who are telling him weird things like get the butter. And I'm laying there like, get the butter. (laughs) Get the butter. Get the butter. (laughs) Not an ear of corn. (laughs) I was just like, like, what's wrong with my grandfather? Why is he saying get the butter? Yeah, cause, um, because you had probably never heard of that before putting butter on a burn. No, I had I mean, not heard of that. I was an ice ice and aloe vera mother. <laughs> it's, well, that's what they used to do is cold butter. But now they're saying it's more yeah. like grease that, that actually, you know, it inflicts more pain than uh, anything else. So... Um, oh, let's it see. The heat in. It holds the heat in. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so let me, I think I, uh, I'm going to read a note from uh, Barbara about her mom. And it's just more family history that we're going to be recorded here tonight. It's kind of phenomenal. And this gives more family history on uh, Lewis's sister. So my mom, Doris Evelyn Virginia Simpson, was born in Franklin, Mass., on September 29, 1924, she was one of seven children, and she was most spirited. When I called my brother, Louis, to tell him she passed away, he shared stories of my mom when she was a little girl. She was a feisty one within this large family. 
She was the only one who would dare talk back to her dad, who was a formidable man. This spirited nature stayed with my mother throughout her life, oftentimes getting her in trouble, but also making her a strong woman. When she was a little girl, Doris had scarlet fever and rheumatic fever. She was in the hospital and her brother Lewis would sneak out to see her. The ki- I didn't know this. The kids would stand on tippy toes to see her in, the, her in the hospital room. This bout with rheumatic fever damaged Doris's heart and for all her life she suffered a heart condition. This heart condition was never diagnosed until years later. She was taking care of my dad with Parkinson's disease. And mom and dad had moved to Florida to get away from the harsh New England weather. It was here that Doris cared for my dad as best she could. Watching her husband, Robert, deteriorate from Parkinson's was an extremely difficult task. He used, used, she used every measure to keep him at home and protect his dignity. Throughout this time, Doris had a heart condition. She ended up in the hospital where they finally correctly diagnosed her heart problem. Mom called from Florida when she ended up in the hospital. Dad was in the waiting room all alone, no one to watch over him. She needed to have heart surgery, and my mother received surgery. Who would take care of Dad? And as usual, she would say she would rest until she felt better. And Mom finally brought Dad home to be with his family in the end. Driving from Florida to an old in an old minivan, the two made their way back to New England. When they finally got here, she helped Dad up to the house and looked out to see where Mom was. She was leaning against the van. Todd ran down to help her and ended up carrying her into the house while she was so weak. She rested for a few days, which was her way of healing herself, and was up and about in a few days later. These times were times when she was so weak and had to rest there with strokes. She had them throughout her life, and we never knew until she was in her 70s. Dad passed away, Robert Scala, passed away September 21st, 2001, and shortly thereafter, my mom's heart condition worsened. She then had a heart valve placement. Doctors were amazed that this small woman was still making around with such a damaged heart, and she had to wait until my dad was okay before she let herself go. I never realized how truly strong my mother was until I sat by her bed and watched her suffer in her last days. Poor little woman was ready to give up the fight and wanted to go home. Home to Doris was heaven, and she had been ready for many years, and as a daughter, it was hard to talk about. I am glad she insisted upon discussing it today because we are honoring her wishes and celebrating her life. Doris did not want anyone especially her family, to cry for her when she was gone. She wanted us to have a celebration, and she's finally home in heaven with so many people she loved. You know, it's so, you know, perfect because that's what we believe. Lewis was always waiting for Kathy and all of his siblings up in heaven, and that's where he is now. And we are celebrating his life and the love that we have for him. And uh, thank you so much, Barbara, for sending that. And she's in Connecticut. She's listening to us and enjoying us our little thing here we got going. So, um, you know, we just, we only have like eight minutes now. These two hours went just flung, flying by. And uh, well, it was I just, want you to uh, know that I'm go ahead. Sitting here crying over Aunt Dutchie. I just want you to know that. I remember Aunt Dutchie. She was a, a very tough lady. She was really one in a million. I heard about her all my whole life. I'll teach you this. I'll teach you this. She really did. They were talked about her forever. Right, I always heard what, about her. That's what Lewis used to tell me um, yeah. about Aunt Dutchie. And that's the only, re- you know, frame of reference I have. And she was and oh, she was uh, small because uh, she would send me uh, letters. 
And she was small, but she was very sturdy, you know, just really with it, you know. It's just, uh, it's just the little do we know how, how bad that was that, you know, of uh, all that illness and everything else. And, you know, I, I have, uh, actually have been ill too. It's so weird that we all have the same stuff. So, um, but I, I yeah. feel that I'm going to be in recovery, you know, just soon. So I have an appointment with a surgeon. So, you know, my left heart and my left valve is, uh, enlarged due to this weird thyroid issue that I never knew I had. But I'm I'm really persevering forward because I'm uh, I have so much more left to do, you know. And this, what it's okay. done for me, is actually helped me to say uh, goodbye in a good way. And I'll see you again, Uncle Lou. Yeah. We'll all see him again. We'll all be together again someday. You know, it's just so. It's just till the next the next road, you know, the next time. You know, that's all that we'll all be together. Yeah. All the cousins will be together on your side of the family. Well, yeah, because I'm going to move back yeah. east. I'm going to be with all my cousins. We're going to have a cousin extravaganza. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I can't wait. And, and then when they come there. and say, who are all, yep, and they're going to say, come and say, who are all these people? I'm okay. This is my cousin, first cousin, second cousin, third degree. This is cousin for blood. <laughs> blood is thicker than water, so is insanity. So we've got lots of that too. So we're carrying on the family tradition. You know, I just don't want to carry on the family resentment like I have. <laughs> I was in, and uh, <laughs> this oh, is horrible no. too. Because, you know, I, you know, have no, no, uh inheritance nothing i have one thing though i did get was a plastic rams cup right so i yeah i got the plastic rams cup and i'm probably the only one that would even appreciate this cup because i know i was with my dad when he got it but that's what i got from my family inheritance so being resentful over this has really chapped my hide since my pet dad passed and uh because they told me different that i would have this and i have that but okay so what i did i was in group with all because you know like i counsel prisoners so they were talking about letting go of resentments and we were doing a really nice group and i said well i have a resentment and i drew uh, a ram's cup <laughs> and i filled it up to the top it looked like it was filled with water and then i put an arrow and the arrow was said resentment i said it's filled to the brim with resentment Oh, and they looked at, they looked at, I know, it's true. It was filled to the brim. And they looked at me, I said, because this is my inheritance. And they looked at me and said, you know, if you want to, they threw whatever I've taught them in my face. They said, you know, if you want a happy and healthy life and stay sober and live a, a great life, you've got to throw that away, don't you? And I went, no. And then they I don't want to let go. So I had my hands on it and getting ready to tear it. And then they said, you have to throw it away. Let go. Let go. They all started chanting, man. This is sick. This is sick people. (laughs) And then I said, okay, I'll let go. And I ripped it up. And I remarkably felt better. You know what I mean? Because you know what? Whatever we didn't get, whatever we think we need or whatever, we're getting you know what I mean? From the scared, of, we're afraid of heights. You know what I mean? And our isolation, our resentment 
cups and all that other this runs deep in our family and i don't know what it's i don't know why but we are truly blood because we all act the same you know what i mean we're all the same way but i want to mm-hmm. say that 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 i'm letting my my resentment cup is empty i still have the cup i'm not i'm keeping that as a cherished possession because you know you gotta laugh really do. So what do you yeah. think? The same thing, you know, because uh, we, we really, we wish, we wish, we wish, you know, but, uh-oh, here's another one. Look, it runs in the family. Barbara, I hear you. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, she's listening. She's saying, I'm glad I was able to listen. Nice getting to know this part of the family, and I did not know at all. I also got no inheritance, a lot of junk. I guess the Simpsons had a curse. Just like Uncle Lou, losing it all in Las Vegas. <laughs> awesome, Barbara. Join the club. <laughs> I didn't have any idea either. I am so happy. I, I've got the chills now. You think this is sickening? It, it's beautiful. Because <laughs> we have to let go. Because, you know, we can't take it with us anyway. But somebody took it. But I don't know who. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened. So, wow, it happened to her, too. Well. This is a curse of the family, so I don't feel alone at least. None of us it are alone. Sure sounds like it. Yeah. It is. It's some bizarre thing. So I would like to uh to uh, say that I had a lot of laughs and a lot of blessings and uh I wanna thank you, Barbara, from listening from Connecticut and everybody other family members that are listening. And um also thank you, Mary and Marion, for joining and my cousin Lou and I love you guys so much. You know, you all you're part of my life and my heart forever. And I know that, you know, we're not together now, but you're part of my three year plan. So, you know, I look every night and I have that dream, you know, in front of me that I will retire and go back east, you know. 'Cause I've been out here a really yeah. long time. I've been out here since I was thirteen. And it's time to go back to wow. my roots and that's where I'm going, so uh any uh any last little thing i'm i'm good i'm good you're good you're <laughs> we good? love you i just, I just okay have, love you too I, we love you say goodbye lou uh and what hey you yeah. say goodbye lou oh charlene i'm sorry about this evening i love you lou no i love your voice go ahead you know, just hearing your voice yeah. and uh, as some voice I'll remember all my life. And, you know, that's that voice I heard since I was a baby. And I just want to let you know I love you very much. And uh, I know I it was hard you. losing your pops and our uncle. And I love you so much. And uh, don't forget about me. And uh, God bless you. And uh, uh, all good. We got your number. Yeah, and, and now we'll we're back in, in touch. touch. That's really right. good. Cause it's- okay than having family like you, you know, that we're just totally comfortable with each other and uh, accepting. And I'm going to tell you, you've been a blessing to me all my life. Right. Thank you, Lou. I, I will, too. You're, you're, you know, I think about you a lot, you know. You come into my mind. You me know, too. when we used to hang out when we were kids. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell it's really yeah. strange to know somebody that long, you know what I mean, that it's your, your whole lifetime. Right. So. I cherish that, and uh, I'll be seeing you soon, and I love you very much, and uh, we'll, we'll keep in contact all the time. Okay? Okay. Okay, love okay. you. 
Bye-bye. Okay, love you guys. I love you, love you too. Love you, Mary. Love you, Marianne. Love you, Barbara. Love you. God bless you. See you next week. God bye. bless bye. you. God bless you too. Bye. Okay, good night, everybody. Good night. I'd like to say thank you so much for tuning in tonight to our family remembrance of our beloved Uncle Lou. And uh, I want to just say uh, thank you, Uncle Lou, everything that you've taught me and the things that you've uh, left us, the, the memories and the, just the awesomeness of uh, people that were bigger than life. You know, all the sisters and the brothers and you, Uncle Lou, were, were bigger than anything to us. You know, we'll never forget you. And now you're all up there playing cards in heaven and love you guys so much. And uh, God bless you all. And God bless you, listeners and family members, and love you so much. God bless you. Bye-bye.